Dangerous Visions. struggle to forget that other half-known hell. Can't stay here too long. Someone will come. thing I have to a brother looks up at me. Where the bloody hell have you been? Cliff is a violent man, a feared man without forgiveness. I'm the only person apart from his wife who he cares about. Jan's been sick with worry. I remain silent. What happened? What happened? Your car caught fire. That seems so long ago when I met the strange woman and bought a dead brother's car. I've almost forgotten it. Oh, that was, that was nothing. Nothing? He points to the bruises on my face. And those? The car gutted and the bruises, nothing. Look, Cliff. No, you look. Someone's ironing you out and I want to know who. I want to see his face while he's still got one. An awkward silence falls between us. The edge drops out of Cliff's voice. It fills with a quieter concern. Why won't you tell me? How can I explain something I don't understand myself? There's nothing to tell. The silence settles on us again. I sit at a table with the two people I know best, and yet they are strangers. Not hungry. Sorry. Jan is ten years younger than her husband. She has a piercing sweetness. Oh, why don't you stay a few days? I sip my wine. Just a day or two. It's nice and quiet here. I'm OK. You disappear off the face of the earth for three weeks and you're back looking like death. Three weeks? Three weeks? Four or five days? Cliff glances at Jan, then looks hard at me. Nearly a month, John. I'm drawn to the luster of the darkness beyond the car as Cliff drives me home. I find myself filled with an intense longing for that unnatural place where I've been. All evening, I've seen glimpses of the zone in my mind's eye. The old American saloon with mirrored windows. The cloned grey men, their nerveless eyes hidden behind green-lensed glasses. The dogs clawing the glass door, their muzzles flecked with foam. Dogs. Dogs? I can hear dogs. You ate dogs. You ate animals. Remember that rat in the paper sack? Rat in the sack? No. When we were kids. He looks at me, willing me to remember. Your old fella killed it with a spade? I retreat back into silence, searching the darkness for the mystery that had held my eyes. The night suddenly fills with a scratchy soprano singing Verdi. 
Then I see him quite clearly. The old man from the drum fire in the badlands of the zone. He squats in a dry corner of a derelict house, winding his gramophone while his one record plays. He lifts the tin box from his bag, takes out the bloody glasses, puts them on, and fizzing with madness extravagantly conducts the opera. John. The old man's music calls to me, eerie and sinister. John. I feel a lingering sense of drift, as though I'm wandering away from my life. John. I am still John Turner, but less and less. Parts of my past are starting to disappear. in the zone, sheltering from the sun under a tree, plucking a blade of grass, putting it between my lips, the pungent vapour it gave off as though dipped in acid blood on my lips. That's the smell, burning rust. On the floor, park grass smouldering in a saucer, giving off a saffron smoke. I stand staring down at it mesmerized by the fantastic images I can see in the curling smoke. For a moment, there is a perfect silence. Then it is broken by a voice behind me. He sent me to take you back. I start to feel a creeping paralysis, the muscles of my mouth seizing up. My mouth won't form... work... words... McClelland. The shotgun. You walk through the boundary. Get to the bedroom. No one walks through the boundary. Hands and knees crawling, cage standing over me. He wants to know how. He sticks to me like a leech. Come back with me. You can have anything. Anything you want. Shotgun under the bed. You and me, Turner. We could pull McClelland down. He hasn't seen it. Together. We could run the zone. As my fingers touch the shotgun, he kicks it away. It spins and skids across the wooden floor, hits a wall and fires. I'm sitting beside a swimming pool in the grounds of a luxury house in the zone. My eyes are protected by dark glasses. At the end of the pool are two armed guards who occasionally glance at me. A woman appears, perhaps 30, her dark hair jailed in a bun. As she approaches, I can see that she wears a fugitive expression, as though at some point in her life she has become lost, taken a wrong turning, and now cannot find a connection to anything. She arrives at the chair and stands, looking down at me. I'm Dr. Costello. She lightly taps my foot with hers. You're not asleep. I can smell the heat on her flesh as she bends over me. How's the face? One side of my neck and face are covered with a sterile dressing. You are lucky not to be blinded. She gently eases the dressing back to take a look. I brush her aside and walk to the edge of the pool. 
She looks at the guards, quickly indicates that everything is under control and moves forward to approach me again. I stare down into the mirror of water and throw the glasses aside, rip the dressing from my face and toss it into the pool. We have to learn to trust each other. She hands me the glasses. I'm the only hope you have, believe me. Give me one good reason why I should. It's my job to keep you alive. She takes a closer look at the shotgun pellet scars critically close to my eyes. We start testing tomorrow. I sit beside Dr. Costello in the back of a limousine, staring out of the window. I'm wearing spotless white linen gloves over which handcuffs have been locked. Dr. Costello is plainly worried about my physical and mental condition, but she makes no attempt to talk to me, as she knows she will get no response. A goat is following close behind, its headlights dipping and flaring into the back of the limousine. I'm starting to feel nauseous. Slow down. The driver chooses not to hear. Did you hear me? We're late. We were late last night. He reluctantly slows. The goat behind flashes its lights. They know we're late. Is it far? Not far. <laughs> How far? You've been before. You don't recall? No. At all? No. The test area is lit up like a film set in the middle of nowhere. A huge, mobile laboratory surrounded by a battery of complex electronic equipment. The driver parks the limousine close to a generator with different color power cables running into it. The guard helps me from the car. As Dr. Costello steps from the limousine, the driver opens his door. Not you. You stay in the car. We might have to leave in a hurry. I want to be sure where you are. The driver gives her a sour look, slams the door shut, settles back in his seat and lights a cigarette. The guard unlocks and removes the handcuffs. I start to walk towards the laboratory. I stop to look at a pile of dead pigeons that have been dumped close by. Death has reached into their beauty. The iridescent gloss of their plumage is now the color of dull, wet ash. Their broken bodies form a mound of tangled wings, twisted necks, and glinting dead eyes that seem to stare straight at me. Then I remember the first time I was here, the burnt-out street drowning in unnatural light. An old man carrying a basket of pigeons walks down the center of the road until he comes to a luminous white cross painted on the tarmac. He lowers the basket onto the cross and kneels beside it, waiting. The lights dim in a massive power drain. The old man throws back the lid of the basket, releasing the pigeons. They fly as a flock, a wedge of flashing color. As they start to climb, they hit the invisible wall with a jolting hiss and slowly spiral lifeless back to the ground. You've been here before. Do you remember? As the guard takes my elbow, he urges me on. I stumble. The doctor moves quickly forward. Don't touch him! The guard steps back as though he's been stung. She slips an arm round my waist and drapes my arm round her shoulder to take my weight. You okay? I nod. With a parting glare at the guard, she helps me towards the steps that lead up to the laboratory. 
Most of the space is taken up with state-of-the-art digital equipment linked to a bank of computers. Technicians are busy lining up the technology. Dr. Costello guides me to a chair at the far end where a space has been cleared. She moves away to check the emergency oxygen. A technician approaches and removes one of my gloves. My fingers, from tip to first joint, are coated in gold. The doctor turns angrily. Leave him! She moves quickly back to the chair and snatches the glove from him. Did you hear me? I said get away! I study my gold-tipped fingers. What are these bastards doing to me? Listen to me, Turner. Listen. We don't lie to each other. I raise the other hand and pull the glove off with my teeth. Turner, do we? I spit the glove to the floor, see the same gold-tipped fingers. I raise my gilded hands to her. They link you to these computers. What else? My back. What's in my bastard back? I fling an arm over her shoulder, trying to reach the middle of my back. She goes to grab my arm, loses her balance and falls. Two of the technicians go to help her. I hit one of them hard. She scrambles to her feet and places herself between me and the two men. The door of the laboratory opens and Dwoskin enters. Tall, thin, prematurely balding with ghostly pale eyes. He takes in the situation at a glance. The tension between the doctor and Dwoskin is tangible. What happened? The doctor has got me back to the chair and is taking my blood pressure. Has he done any damage? She despises him, won't look at him or speak to him, shakes her head. Can he walk? That's all he has to do, walk a hundred yards. He cross-checks two identical watches, one on each wrist. We're already 55-22 behind. Without Turner, you have ten tons of computerised crap on wheels. The door of the laboratory is flung open. Dwoskin and the doctor storm out. He walks a dozen paces and turns on her. Do you know how long it takes to set this up? He's physically exhausted. Do you have any idea? I stand by the doorway. Eleven hours. Watching. Listening. Six tests in eight days. Eleven hours, and you can't give me twenty minutes. But twenty minutes could kill him. You only have to look at the man. You're not being objective. Objective? We're talking about a man's life. Turner goes back with me now. That's official, is it? Tonight is cancelled. He blocks her way back to the laboratory. Get out of my way. A black limousine moves silently into view behind them. Dwoskin has seen it. The doctor has not. So, tonight is cancelled. And tomorrow night, the night after... The car creeps ever closer, then stops. You'll inform McClelland. What? He points over our shoulder at the parked limousine, then walks back to the laboratory. I'll be in the computerised crap on wheels. Dr. Costello stands rooted for some time, hating herself for letting Dwoskin do this to her. The sinister black vehicle just sits there, spreading its dark influence. She walks uneasily towards it. As she draws close, a window winds down. In the gloom of the interior, I can just make out a pale, dead face. You're late. There are complications. You were late last night. Turner is close to collapse. Smoke from his cigar curls lazily through the open window. We have to postpone tonight. McClelland leans forward into the light. Postpone? We're searching for non-existent data, some psychophysical formula. There isn't one. There isn't going to be one, no matter how many times you sent Turner through that hellhole. He's unique, and you're going to kill him. 
The window winds up and the limousine accelerates silently away. Dr. Costello shouts after it. What use is he to your dead? Dwoskin is on the phone as I enter, the doctor behind me. He holds the receiver out to her. She ignores him. He covers the mouthpiece. It's McClelland. She snatches the receiver from him and slams it down without saying a word. You're starting to rattle, Dr. Costello. I sit back in the chair. The doctor gently strips me to the waist. There are a dozen gold needles attached to leads inserted into bruised flesh in different parts of my body. I tried. I really did try. I know. One of the technicians steps forward to link the needles to a microcomputer on a belt round my waist. No one! The doctor pushes him away. No one touches Turner but me. Wired like a monkey in space, I walk with the doctor towards the test boundary. I stop for a moment to look at a dead pigeon that has fallen from the old man's basket. It is already seething with ants. I'm not going to make this one, am I? It's a possibility. What happens to you if I die? I don't know. Yes, you do. You'll end up in McClellan's freezer. A technician is waiting with a robot camera. The doctor slips something from her pocket and secretly passes two capsules to me. Take these. They reduce respiration. I slip them into my mouth as the technician approaches with the camera cable and plugs it into the computer belt. You mustn't stop. Whatever happens, don't stop. She kisses me lightly on the cheek. Good luck. I can see that she is fighting back tears as she turns and makes her way to a car waiting for her. It drives slowly round the test boundary a hundred yards down the street and stops beside a goat that is already parked there. I take the robot camera cable in one hand and move forward to the painted cross in the middle of the road. I can feel a flood of fear rising in me. In the distance, I see the doctor get out of the car carrying her emergency bag and a small cylinder of oxygen. She walks forward as far as she can and stands looking at me, willing me to survive. The dimming of the lights is my cue to move past the boundary into the test area. When it happens, I remain still. Dwoskin's voice comes over an earpiece. What's the problem? I stand motionless in silent defiance. Talk to me. I look up, run my eyes over the shells of buildings on either side of the street and call out. McClellan! Then I see him standing with his bodyguard four floors up in a house with no front, the perfect balcony view. Take your soldiers away and what are you? Nothing. Paper-ass bastard a dog wouldn't lift its leg on. He just stands there looking down at me, hands punched into his coat pockets, shoulders curled like a great black bird of prey. I turn to face the test boundary. The street empties of sound, then, with a noise in my head like slowly breaking glass, I walk forward into the test area. I am consumed by light, lurid and violent variations of colour. Shapes collapse into their shadows, the air is on fire. I look up to where I think McClelland is, instead I see the Zone Christ framed in an empty gothic arch. 
his robe caught by a storm wind, his cross ablaze. In the mirror of light all around me, I see reflections of my face, bones through flesh, no eyes, no mouth, no breath. freed from the drowning heat, bleeding from nose and ears. I hear Dr. Costello's voice as though coming out of an anaesthetic. She rips the camera cable away and helps me to the car. The driver makes no move to open the door. If this man dies, are you going to inform McClelland? The driver quickly opens the door and helps the doctor get me into the back seat. I slump, chin on chest, dangling hands. She gets in beside me. She gently eases my head back and wipes the blood from my face. She slips the mask over my nose and mouth and turns the oxygen on. Nothing has ever felt quite so good. I have survived, but only just. Dwoskin looks in. Technically, you're dead. The doctor takes my hand and slips the needle of a syringe into a vein in the back of it. Technically, he should be. What would have happened to you then? She has to smile. You'd have ended up in McClellan's freezer. <laughs> if he dies, we must have his body for autopsy. He's not going to die. She looks down at me. I've closed my eyes. She knows I'm not sleeping. She knows what I'm thinking. Faced with death, everything trivial disappears. Past and future mean nothing. The endless present is all that matters. The limousine speeds through the zone. I'm slumped against Dr. Costello, wrapped in a blanket, still taking oxygen. The lights of the following goat splash into the back of the limousine on the unmade road. Suddenly I throw the blanket aside, rip the oxygen mask off, take hold of the cylinder and crack it across the back of the guard's head. The doctor is as astonished as the driver, who has no time to react before I hold the blade of a stolen pair of scissors to his neck. The driver, not easily intimidated, glances at me in the rearview mirror. They'll shoot you down like a dog! I push the point of the blade into his neck, drawing blood. Is that after I kill you? The doctor leans forward to check the unconscious guard. Get his gun! She freezes. Gives me a look I've not seen before. Panic. It quickly passes. She slides the guard's handgun from its holster and passes it to me. I drop the blade and hold the gun to the driver's head. Faster! He accelerates. Faster! I glance back and estimate the distance to the front of the goat. Slow down. Faster! Slow down! What the hell do you want? His foot hovers over the brake pedal. I fire a shot close to it. In a reflex action, the driver stands on the brake. The wheels of the limousine lock. Skidding tires gouge into the unmade road, sending up a screen of dust. The driver of the goat is blinded and brakes too late. Skids, drifts. The goat impales itself on the rear fender of the heavy limousine. The driver accelerates. The limousine pulls away, taking the front of the goat with it. I look back. The goat is out of control, its steering damaged. One side drops into a ditch. It careens along on two wheels, then rolls over and bursts into a ball of fire before it comes to rest on its roof, wheels spinning. We stop opposite a derelict garage. I stand over the driver as he drags the unconscious guard from the car. 
All his bombast has deserted him. Don't leave me here. The doctor gets into the guard seat. She knows from this point that she is no longer a doctor. She is, like me, a fugitive. That McClelland will not rest until we're both captured or dead. Don't leave me here! I get in the limousine. The driver lunges forward to try to stop me closing the door. Not out here! I start the engine. As the car pulls away, the driver runs alongside, clinging onto the mirror. As he is dragged along, his hold weakens and he falls away into the darkness. I drive as fast as the road conditions will allow. All we can do now is press on until we come to some recognizable place. As we approach what looks like a town, I slow down. Do you know where we are? No. I'll leave you safe somewhere, dump this, rest up a couple of days, then through the boundary for the last time back to the city. You can't. You'll die. I didn't die an hour ago. You damned nearly did. I'd hate to live on the difference. I'm going. Whatever you say. She slips a small automatic from her pocket and points it at me. I'd rather kill you now. <laughs> what about your Hippocratic Oath, Dr. Costello? Feeling foolish, she slowly lowers the gun. I'm no longer a doctor. I understand her sadness. I am responsible for it. We drift on in silence. We both know that like so many others in the zone, we are traveling in the direction of our fear. We have stopped for a short rest. I lean forward in my seat and close my eyes. She puts a comforting arm round my shoulder. Perhaps in a year or... Car lights approaching in the distance. She grabs my arm. Where the hell do we go now? I know someone. What? He'll help us. We make our way cautiously through an old timber building that seems to talk to us, creaking and groaning as it shifts in the wind. Dust covers every surface and runs in rivulets along the floor. The windows are veneered with grime, letting in a dull half-light. A sudden sound alerts us. We slip into a room and close the door to a crack. A girl, no more than 14, naked under a silk robe, her body pitiably thin, walks barefoot down the passage. As she passes the door, I grab her, clamp her hand over her mouth and lift her, kicking into the room. We're not here to harm you. She claws at my face. We're looking for Walker? Costello, half hidden in the shadows, moves forward into what little light there is so the girl can see her. He's my brother. His real name is David Costello. The girl goes still, all fight gone from her. I remove my hand from her mouth and lower her bare feet to the floor. Where is he? The girl remains completely silent. Is he here? Her face has an extraordinary translucence. Her sly eyes look through Costello like a cat. She turns and walks down the passage, turns to check that we're following. She's a mute. The melting ice has formed pools of water on the uneven stone floor of the cellar. Lying in a coffin of carved ice blocks, his eyes open, wetly shining, is David Costello. 
Around the ice coffin are propped pictures of the sea that have been cut from magazines and pasted onto cardboard stands. For each picture, there is a flickering candle. Tears brim in the doctor's eyes as she looks down at her dead brother. How the dead cling to the living. We make our way back through the maze of passages and blind staircases. Then from nowhere, I'm knocked senseless. I sit alone at a table in a bare room in an abandoned military complex, nursing my head and holding a mug of tea. A door opens and a small, dark, intense woman enters. She gives me a look that feels like running a thumb down the blade of a just-sharpened knife. I'm Hill. I sip my tea, purposefully silent. She takes a bottle from a canvas bag and unscrews the cap. Try this. Expensive whiskey. She tops my tea up, then leaves the bottle open on the table. Where's Dr. Costello? Safe. She'd better stay that way. I was told that you're a belligerent bastard. She pulls out a chair and sits opposite. You don't disappoint. She opens the bag and takes out a folder wrapped in polythene. What did Eisten show you? The name sets off an instant run of memory, precise and exact. I am back in the room of simulated sea, sunshine and gulls, handcuffed to a metal chair, watching Ms. Eisten clean her glasses with a lace handkerchief. Hill unwraps and opens the folder. It contains photographs, newspaper cuttings and drawn portraits of people. Prints from the negatives you were given. I'm still in that room, chained to the chair. Turner. Listening to the taped squall of gulls. She showed me four, no, five. Hill starts to sort through her photographs. I went to his funeral. Jack Cage? Yes. He's buried a few here. She slides one of her photographs across the table to me. Is that one of the men she showed you? I take my time, study the photograph. It is of an elderly man with a sallow, secretive face, hooded slits for eyes. Well? I push the photograph back to her. He's one of them. She picks up the bottle and drinks from it, then slides a second photograph across the table. No. A third photograph is of a younger man. He looked older. That was taken ten years ago. I look again, nod. To save time, Hill passes the folder of faces to me. I pick out a third. She lines it up with the other two. I work my way through the rest and look up at her. Just three? The other two aren't there. Can you describe them? <sighs> One, maybe 60, looks younger, grey hair, handsome, bitter face, cruel eyes. I reach up and run the tip of a finger lightly across the bridge of my nose. Crescent scar here. Are you sure? Certain. I sip my whiskey tea. Hill goes back to her bag, takes out an envelope from which she draws a smaller photograph. She studies it for some time, with the sort of look when you're trying to deal with a past that is never quite past. Is this him? I recognise the face instantly. Yes. He's dead. So was Jack Cage. I saw him. Half his head blown away. That was the man. She counts off the faces. Stirk. 
Morgan, Ike Green and... She places the smaller photograph in the neat line. Jack Macklin. You said five. Who was the fifth man? Can you describe him? I pick up the bottle and top up my tea. It was a woman. A woman? About 30, square face, short dark hair parted in the middle, glasses. Hill smiles a smile of recognition. Monk. She starts to gather up the faces, place them back in the folder, back in the bag. No one knows what McClellan's business in the city is. A lot of people have died trying to find out. Come with me. She stops and turns back when she realises I'm not following. Where is Costello? She's quite safe. She's resting. I remain seated. We need you, Turner. You have access. You can go through the boundary. None of us can. I get up from the table and walk towards her. It would be more than my life is worth to tell Hill that I too am now a prisoner in the zone. As the lift arrives, laser-activated lights switch on. A.V., slightly drunk, carrying her shoes, makes her way unsteadily across the room. She drops the shoes on a chair, slips off her coat and lets it fall to the floor. As she pours herself a brandy, she senses someone in the room and slowly turns to face us. She doesn't seem at all phased. She absently swills the brandy around the glass. A lot of people dying around you, Turner. It's a great place for dying. My next. Hill walks to a white grand piano covered in framed photographs. A.V. looks at her, then back to me. Don't let her fool you. She's like a cancer. She'll eat you down to the bone. You can warm your hands on her hate. Hill ignores the abuse and picks up a photograph of Jack Macklin. Put that down. Cruel eyes. Show some respect for the dead. Is he? What? Dead. What are you talking about? With Jack, it's always a woman. Find the woman, you find Jack Macklin. Jack is dead. Shot in the head. I saw it. Close as I am to you. He's in the city working for McClelland. McClelland had him murdered. If you're going to kill me, kill me. What does McClelland do in the city? He recruits. I know that. He recruited me. That too. I'd murdered my husband. What else? He corrupts surgeons for transplant organs. They can't resist the money. And? A.V. is starting to enjoy herself. He visits his children. McClelland has children. Hard to believe. That snake. You're lying. 300. I will kill you. He bought them from orphanages years ago. Paid people to raise them. They're almost ready. Ready? To take over the zone. Lit by the headlights of a car at the back of the military complex, 40 dead are laid out neatly in a single row. Hill walks slowly down the line. Laid out like game birds. The youngest and the best. There's more of us, McClelland! For everyone here, there's ten more! You can't kill all of us! The last is Costello. 
I stand looking down at her face smoothed by death. We'd better get out of here. We drive in a strange sense of silence, as though nothing after will be quite the same. When the edge of the outlands meets the back blocks of the zone, the spill of buildings are lit with flickering yellow streetlights that give the area a jaundiced, palsied feel, as though anyone foolish enough to enter will leave infected. Dump the car. Hide it. The roads are too dangerous. We soon find ourselves in the graveyard of a derelict church. The narrow pathway between the graves is choked with weeds. There's a flight of worn stone steps down to a wooden door. The crypt is small with a low ceiling, fogged by candle smoke, candles everywhere, walls matted with crucifixes. On the stone floor in one corner is a mattress and a stained pillow. Before we can take it in, the door scuffs open and the Zone Christ enters. He stands in the shadows, staring at us with arctic blue eyes, his white hair incandescent in the darkness. He points a finger at Hill, clearly recognising her, but says nothing. The Zone Christ lowers his arm and gazes at me. He picks up one of the candles and moves towards me. Don't move, Turner. He holds the candle closer and closer to my face until the heat becomes uncomfortable. Then he moves it around as if redrawing my face with the flame. He won't harm you. Outside, cars draw up, doors slam, voices come closer. The Zone Christ hands the candle to me, crosses to the mattress, slides it aside, then lifts a heavy flagstone from the floor. We drop into a tunnel, hill first, then I pass her the candle and follow. At the bottom, I look up at the Zone Christ, who drops the flagstone back into place. In the flickering candlelight, we find ourselves in a lost river tunnel. Crouching as low as we can, we move forward. There is hardly room for our shadows. Who is he? No one really knows. Some say that he was the first one here. In the zone? That's what they say. How old is he? Oh, he doesn't age. He looked exactly the same when I was a child. Where are we going? To start a war. Across my lap, I'm holding a new semi-automatic rifle wrapped in oiled paper as we drive into the Badlands. There's six groups we need with us, none of them suicidally sociable. She glances at me and catches the end of a wry smile. Without them, no chance. We leave the van and move quickly through a rat maze of alleys between bullet-pocked buildings. Suddenly, we're pinned to the wall by a blinding light. Hill shouts into the darkness. You know me! I want to see Backer! This is Turner! The light goes out. Backer smells the oiled paper, then rips it from the weapon. I love that smell. He handles it expertly. And it been test-fired. He raises it, aims and pulls the trigger. Cut you in half. Cleans a cat's ass. Got any more? Sixty. Where's the war? Wherever McClelland is. 
Throughout the zone, a running battle rages between the Eyes and Hills coalition. Buildings are ablaze. Explosions light up the night sky. The dry rattle of small arms fire echoes through streets strewn with spent casings. The Eyes paint death in broad strokes. They kill efficiently. They are made for murder. The partisans, freed from their fear of the eyes, dart from cover to cover, from shadow to stranded pool of shadow with daring grace as bullets cut all around them. I'm told that Hill has been fatally wounded. When I get to her, she's been laid in the open back of a van. The fighting rages. I bend my head to hear her. You never know how far. It's too far. Until you've made the journey. Her voice is fading. There's no one else. It is as though she's sharing my breath to keep herself alive. To hold them together. Her unfocused, centerless eyes half close as though looking into the low slant of the sun. You. Turner. There's only you. Kill McClelland. I take her hand and hold it tightly as she looks at me for the last time and then slides into the darkness beneath her. Vehicles are parked with their headlights trained on a wall with Hill's name painted on it. An improvised place of execution. I sit in Hill's car remembering what she said to me. There is a volley of fire as six eyes are shot. Jack Cage is walked to the car by two armed women. You're starting to smell like a corpse, Jack. He tries to hide his terror. We can deal anything. Turn up. Anything. I want McClelland. Alone. I am back at the blazing oil drum in the zone's no man's land. McClelland and his bodyguards stand beside his limousine some way off. I call out to him. I said alone. So you did. He calmly takes a gun from his pocket and shoots his bodyguard dead. You're beautiful, Turner. I've been looking for you for 20 years. This could be a beginning. The grim night is suddenly filled with the scratchy soprano. For a moment, McClelland is distracted. When he looks back, I'm gone. Turner! Turner! I step back into the light from the fire, look briefly at the two bodies, then at the old man conducting his opera. I smile. I get into Hill's car and drive slowly away until distance consumes it entirely. <laughs>